good turnout. Welcome to this session entitled Socialism versus Capitalism. Socialist, capitalist, just guessing. <laughs> in 2017, Professor Kristen Godsey wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. Headlined, Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism. Before or after their husbands were sent to the gulag, asked one of many tweets. <laughs> Undeterred, she doubled down and she wrote a book called Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, in which she sums up her argument thus. Unregulated capitalism is uniquely bad for women. Mm. You haven't even heard the argument yet. <laughs> I think they're agreeing. You know, are we preaching to the choir here? Unregulated capitalism is uniquely bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. Kristen Godsey is a professor of Russian and Eastern European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. For the past 20 years, she studied the social impacts of Eastern Europe's transition from socialism to capitalism. She's lived in Bulgaria and Eastern and Western Germany. She's traveled widely in Eastern Europe. And I know that you're all keen to know what was the sex like. <laughs> so please welcome Professor Kristen Godsey. So it makes for a good headline, and it's not entirely gratuitous, but sex is a kind of a proxy for the health of women generally. Is it or not? Well, okay, so it's, it's, it's meant to be provocative. And I think that it's important to point out here that when you write for a publication like the New York Times, you don't get to choose your headline. No. No. <laughs> so but you were happy to seize it. I, um, I was forced to have that headline, actually, um, by the publisher. I made a trade. My trade was if I accepted that headline, which because they wanted to... The name on the book. The name on the book. Yes. They wanted to, you know, obviously play off the New York Times article because that had gotten quite a lot of uh, interest. I said, okay, I'll seed the headline if you give me an unlimited number of endnotes. Uh, because there's a lot of research on this topic, believe it or not. People were really interested in whether or not people were having good sex behind the Iron Curtain. And I wanted people... So one of the criticisms about the 1,200-word op-ed that I wrote was that I did not substantiate all of my claims with proper footnotes to all of the research that's out there. And so, <laughs> so I said, OK, if, if, I'll give you the title if you give me the endnotes. And so they gave me an extra 10,000 words. It's almost 10% of the book is proper citations to all of the scholarship. So to answer your question, yes, I do think that in feminist circles, we often talk about how the personal is political. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book is to say, you know what? The political is personal. So a lot of us think that our intimate lives, our relationships with our partners, are somehow walled off from the political economic sphere. That the things that we think about, the things that we talk about, the time that we share is somehow sort of hermetically sealed off from the world around us. So sometimes it feels like that, but it's not. And I do think that people who are um, living in societies with more robust and healthy social safety nets ultimately have better intimate relationships. And I talk about sex in the book. It's not the only thing I talk about in the book. I talk about motherhood. I talk about citizenship. I talk about work. But the sex is the thing that gets everybody's attention. So that's why it's on the cover. Because it's, it's, it's emblematic, isn't it, of health and happiness. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, the argument is a very simple one, which is that when women have economic independence, when women live in a society where their caregiving roles are supported, then if they are in an unhappy or an unhealthy or otherwise abusive relationship, they can leave. 
Uh, and I don't think that that's true of women in societies where their primary access to food and rent, and in my country, medical care, is through a partner, in this case, a heterosexual relationship with a man. Uh, there are many women, I think, who are trapped in very unhappy and unhealthy relationships because they don't have the money to leave. And so if you are in a healthy relationship and you're not with somebody because they are paying your rent, for instance, or providing you medical care, then you might actually be in a relationship with somebody because you like them. <laughs> what a concept, right? Because you find them attractive. And so it's not surprising that your sex, might, sex life might actually improve. Here's an interesting thing, though. <laughs> And, it's, and it's, it's, it's an example to me of how reading can go either way. You cite the high number of divorces as an indication of women's empowerment and how socialism has improved their lives. Right, so that's a specific figure to, about Eastern Germany. Yeah. And the East Germans were very proud of the very high level of divorces yeah. because they also had a very high level of marriage, right? So what happened in Eastern Germany is, you know, they had serial monogamy like we have. We have partners, we break up, we have new partners. Uh, those don't always become marriages, right? But in Germany, what was Eastern Germany, what was happening was that people started relationships and they married, and then when those relationships didn't work out very well, often it was the women who initiated the divorce, which is why the East Germans were so proud of that figure, because that meant that women were economically independent enough to leave that relationship. And then they married somebody else. Isn't that funny, that you should be proud of a divorce rate? Well, but I mean, what is the opposite? That, 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 that the reason, I mean, if you look at some societies where gender equality is in incredibly um, low, you have a very low divorce rate. So that's a symptom of women being trapped in unpleasant and unhappy relationships. So I could say, I could think of quite a few societies where I could say, look at the wonderful stability of these marriages. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what I'm really saying is look at the incredible lack of power of women in this country who do not have the autonomy the freedom to leave a relationship right. that is unsatisfying. So let's talk about what gave them that autonomy. What is it that made women, in your view, economically independent? Pre-Stalin. Right, we're not talking about Stalin. And, it, and that's a really important point because the first Soviet family code was passed in 1918. There was a second family code in 1926 and then Stalin reversed all of this progress that I'm about to talk about in 1936. So there's actually a very fixed moment where Stalin just says, okay, enough. <laughs> Why? Why did he say that? Because the birth rate was plummeting. And uh, he did not want to pay for the... But it's not, it's not as if these women-friendly policies discouraged them from motherhood, right? Um, yes, they did, because in 1920, the Soviet Union became the first country in the world to allow first trimester abortion on demand. All right. And so between 1920 and 1936, for 16 years, Soviet women had access to reproductive rights. A lot of people don't realize that this is the 100th anniversary of that decision. That that's was, extraordinary. That's done by Alexandra Kolontai, who was the first uh, commissar of social welfare. So what did she do? So it's important to point out that prior to the Soviet Union, most of the policies that I'm going to talk about that she implemented were being discussed in West European socialist circles, particularly in Germany. But this goes back to France with Flora Tristan and the utopian socialists, even to England with Robert Owen, for instance, who was a utopian socialist as well. Um, the idea was that you should socialize as much as possible care work around motherhood. And that uh, if the state actually considered child rearing, child bearing and child rearing as a social good, that it would actually uh, create something called maternity insurance. This was a concept by a German social democrat named Lily Braun, who published a really important book in 1901 called The Woman Question. And she said, we should have collective uh, monies, taxation, that would help women raise their children, bear and raise their children. It's a pretty radical idea in Europe for the time. So when Alexandra Kolontai becomes the Commissar of Social Welfare after 1917, immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution, she implements a series of policies. One, she allows the liberalization of divorce, first thing. Lots of women rush out and divorce their husbands. Um, she also tries to create kindergartens and Point crushes. of interest, 
How did she do that? How did she enable women to be able to divorce their husbands? So she removes marriage from the ecclesiastical authority of the Russian Orthodox Church, and she creates civil ceremonies. And uh, once marriage is civil, the government can grant a divorce. So essentially, she um, kind of pulls the rug out from under the Russian Orthodox Church. And, um, and that's incredibly profound thing. It's one of the most popular policies that she implements. It's the first thing, by the way, that she does. It's a decree at the very end of 1917, even before the Soviet um, Family Code is passed in 1918. So then in 1918, she decides to create a series of kindergartens and creches for very young children to help women. She creates public cafeterias, public um, laundries. So if you think about going to a dry cleaner, imagine if there was like a public laundry, you would drop off your sheets and towels at the beginning of the week and, and then they would come back to you clean, supposedly. Um, there were also mending cooperatives. So mending took up a lot of women's time at that period. And so um, she decided that you could get a group of women together who would sit around and mend and you could bring things and they would mend them for you. So she, she had really this pretty radical idea of socializing a lot of this domestic work. And by doing so, freeing women up to work in, the, in, the, in um, formal employment, which gave them wages, uh, and, and which then actually allowed them to gain a modicum of economic independence. The big problem, of course, was that the liberalization of divorce meant that a lot of men just abandoned their wives when they got pregnant. And the state did not have the resources to support all of the children that were born. They were called red orphans. So you mean the men abdicated their responsibility to the state? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's also important that, you know, Russia lost a lot of men in World War I. It was followed subsequently by the Russian Civil War. So there were a lot of orphans for reasons that had to do with war and not just because men were abandoning their wives. Um, and then there was a terrible famine in 2021. So I think that the Russians, uh, the Soviets immediately after the 1970, 1917 revolution, excuse me, um, faced a pretty high level of hardship. And for Kolontai, the sort of strident socialist feminist that she was, to choose... Strident. Strident. Only a woman can use that word to describe another woman. Yes. She, but she was... Um, I think she was megalomaniacal, actually. She was really, because remember, she was 50. She was, she was, she was born in 1872, so, so by the time the revolution comes around, she's a proper, fully-fledged woman. She's had her child has grown. She's had you know, a series of husbands at this point. She's incredibly powerful. And Lenin and Trotsky and the other Bolsheviks are absolutely intimidated by her. You know, she's just this grand woman. Um, and the only way, uh, in the end, that they get rid of her because it's also important to point out here that she was not only socializing domestic work and trying to get the state to take care of children, she was also very critical of marriage and she was very um, progressive. We would call her a sex radical, right? She also had very progressive ideas about sexuality at that particular moment in time. So the only way they got rid of her was to send her away as the ambassador of Norway. <laughs> um, <laughs> because she spoke like seven languages and she was terribly grand. She was an aristocrat. Um, and so she was the ambassador uh, to Norway for a while. She ends up being sent to Mexico as the ambassador to Mexico. The Americans don't let her land in New York because they, th they, they literally consider her a national security threat. <laughs> um, she's, she's remarkable, the story of this woman. Uh, she ends up back in, Nor uh, sorry, in Sweden, in Stockholm, and she serves as the Soviet ambassador to Sweden for all of the 30s and through the Second World War. She's twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 46 and 47 for her um, role in brokering the Soviet-Finnish peace. So she's an incredibly uh, important figure here. And she had some, what we would consider really radical ideas, and Stalin didn't kill her. <laughs> Which I think is also- Which is always a plus. <laughs> she's one of the few old Bolsheviks who survived the purges in the 30s. And partially because she was abroad, right? Um, partially because- Abroad. Yeah, abroad and abroad. Overseas, we say. <laughs> exactly. It's a wonderful double entendre, yes. <laughs> she wanted to destroy the link between sex and property. Absolutely. What was the link between sex and property? So she wrote an incredible article in 1923 called Make Way for Winged Eros, where she tried to do a Marxist reading of love 
and very few people had actually theorized love before Kolontai. So she was heavily dependent on August Bebel, a German socialist who had written a very important book in 1879 called Woman in Socialism. And her idea was that capitalism made women property. And that as long as uh, women were economically dependent on men, that they were essentially no better than chattel. And the only way to liberate women was to give them some form of economic and political independence, because she's also very much about making sure that women are equal citizens in the new Soviet, you know, um, new Soviet society. And she also believed that women should be educated, women should be, uh, have professional training, she, she was very, very progressive, and so she thought that once, that, that, that only in socialism, this was her view, where women's domestic work, which capitalism uh, exploited, the, you know, basically um, capitalist profits were being uh, supported by the unpaid labor that women do in the home, that only by socializing that, that w women would be truly emancipated. Now, this was not a unique idea to her, as I said. Flora Tristan and, and Charles Fourier and people like Henri Saint-Simon had talked about this much earlier. But she was in a political position to actually realize these things. And so she said that all sexual relations should be free from any economic considerations, which meant that women should choose partners on the basis of love and mutual attraction and not on the basis of whether or not they would be supported. She was personally, uh, she had an older sister who married a man who was something like 50 years her senior because he was considered a good match. And she was horrified by that, absolutely horrified by that. And she thought only when women have full bodily and in some ways spiritual autonomy right, would they be free? And she was very much concerned with women's freedom. You know, it's, it's, there's an irony here, because of course, when we think of the Soviet Union, the last word we think of is freedom. Uh. Yeah, but she really thought about women's independence and women's freedom in a way that I think is valuable to go back and look at, because like, she's writing things like the social basis of the women's question in 1908, 1909. This is before, right, the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, so she's been, she'd been theorizing about these things for quite a long time. And I think that the most important thing is that, yeah, she, she sort of foresaw the arguments that are later made by social psychologists who are playing around with things like sexual economics theory by basically arguing that women um, who are fully autonomous, who are fully formed as individuals, are really the only ones who have um, true bodily autonomy in their sexual relations with men. Let me think how to put this. You and I are both independent women. Mm. We've both made poor choices. Yes. About <laughs> partners. Yes, we have. <laughs> despite economic independence, despite that, are we not putting too much importance on money? We're thinking that that's the source of all evil, but it's not. But it's not necessarily about money, right? Because, I mean, Kolontai wasn't talking about women doing the kind of Sheryl Sandberg lean-in feminism, right? She was talking about having a society that supported women, right? Um, obviously, we are both women. I mean, I, I think having autonomy doesn't mean that you make better choices. You can still make really stupid decisions in your personal life. But you can get out of it. But you can get out of it. Right? You're, I mean, that, I think, is the key thing, right? I mean, I have right. known many women who have made poor decisions, as we all have. I'm sure we've all made poor decisions in our personal lives, or we've fallen for the wrong person. Um, the big thing is when you realize that you've made that mistake, and especially if there's a child involved, that you don't feel forced or trapped in a relationship. Look, in my country... 25% of women under the age of 65 get their health insurance through their husband. Think about that for a second. In New Zealand, you have, as a citizen, the right to see a doctor. In my country, that's not true. If you're one, of, uh, one out of four women under the age of 65 only has the right to see a doctor because her husband is employed. 
which means that if you have a pre-existing condition or your child is sick, it doesn't matter if your husband is beating you or if your husband is an alcoholic or if your husband is otherwise cheating on you or doing just whatever, um, you don't have access to medical care if you leave him. And that has nothing to do with rent, that has nothing to do with putting food on the table, that has nothing to do with finding childcare if you need to go out and work. So that is, and, and we know, right, that in the United States that many, many women are shackled to their relationships because of medical care. This has been discussed at length. And so that's the kind of thing that I think is really important, is the, um, the escape plan. Let's, let's talk about the, what you want from this book. And you've said that you addressed it primarily to young Americans to think critically about the history that they're taught. And you make an interesting point, actually. You say, just as today's ideals of the free market have been decoupled from their past associations with slavery and imperialism, the idea of socialism must be disentangled from its past association with forced collectivization and labor camps and purges. It's an interesting point. But just elaborate on what America means, because it is extreme, yeah. and that's what you're addressing. Yeah. And we might not know right. that you don't have, for example, sick pay. Right. Right. Or, or sick pay or, or parental leave, right? There are plenty of things that we don't have in the no United States. No parental leave. None. Federally mandated, zero. We're one of the few countries in the world where you have no paid parental leave unless your employer, out of you know, their beneficence, bestows it upon you. Um, but we have 12 weeks of FMLA, which was given to us under Clinton, which is unpaid if you have a child or if you have a sick relative. And for most people in the United States, you, you can't take unpaid leave. You're living paycheck to paycheck. L look what's happening with the coronavirus, right? I mean, we have a big percent, 40 million Americans that are uninsured who won't go to the doctor if they feel sick. We have people, because we don't have sick pay, who go to work when they're ill because they can't afford not to miss work, right? So yes, the book was primarily addressed to young Americans. I never thought that it would travel <laughs> internationally. When I was asked to write it, I had a particular audience in mind, which are our students. I've been teaching university for about 20 years, and so I've had 20 years of young women come through my classrooms and young men. And, um, and I feel like every year I kind of have the same conversation with them, which is because I keep getting older and they stay 18 to 22, somehow miraculously, right? It's like, wait a minute, and didn't I tell you this last year? How could you not know? So, so um, but I think that this point that you brought up is really important because look, the United States has a terrible history when we think about the history of capitalism, not only with slavery and Jim Crow, but also with the way that we treated our indigenous peoples. Um, we have uh, uh, you know, the Great Depression and McCarthyism. We have lots of very dark stains on our history. But when we talk about capitalism, we talk about the free market, we are very, very keen to decouple those things. That's not necessarily a, a result of capitalism, right? I mean, even though the profit motive, you know, you could ar argue very clearly that the profit motive and the, the desire for more land and the desire for um, people who will work for you for free is actually quite driven by profit motive. Uh, we, we try to disassemble those things. We try to disentangle them. But when, in the United States, when we talk about socialism, we use the word socialism. It is always reduced immediately down to the worst atrocities of Stalin and the gulag and the famines and the purges. Now, I think it's really important for me to point out that those things happened, <laughs> right? Nobody is denying that. I'm certainly not denying that. And in fact, you know, quite in the United States, I don't know if you have this word here, tankies. Do you guys call tankies? So tankies refer to uh, neo-Stalinists. We have them in the United States. Tankies. Tankies, yeah, like tanks, tankies. Oh. Um, we have tankies who basically think that Scott Stalin was like the greatest thing since sliced, sliced bread. Um, and so I've been attacked. I mean, I've been attacked by a lot of people, but I've also been attacked by tankies who think I'm like harsh on Stalin. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Stalin. Are you serious? <laughs> um, so, 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 yeah, I think that... Um, by, but by recognizing that the history of socialism, especially if you move that history back to the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution, 
and you look at the utopian socialists, and you include the anarchists and the social democrats, and you include things like Yugoslavia or Scandinavia, right? Different social democratic and socialist, democratic socialist parties, then to take the entire universe of socialism and reduce it down to Stalin is, um, is a really intellectually unfair move, and it's very ideological, especially in the context of the United States. We, we can say utopian socialists. Does anybody ever say utopian capitalists? Um, I think, you know, aren't all capitalists like ultimately utopian? They're the free market fundamentalists who believe in the, the invisible hand of supply and demand. I mean, that's what I would think of as utopian capitalism. Right. Um, but no, we don't think that we don't call them that right. um, when we go back to Adam Smith or Ricardo, right? We think of them as this. Because utopian implies a paradise that will never be reached. Right, right but, the, but the utopian socialists in the European context when they were writing specifically refers to um, people like the Sansimonians who were creating these phalanx communities, right? They believed that they could create these socialist um, enclaves. I think there were like 190 English socialists who came to New Zealand in 1901 to form a socialist colony, and if somebody can correct me, I'm not 100% sure about that, um, they're the predecessors of the Labour Party, right? So, so there were these enclaves of socialists who came, and they thought that what they could do is create these idyllic communities. Communes. And, communes, exactly, communes. And that, um, and that people would then look at them and go, oh, look how happy and wonderful those people are. We should all join communes, right? So they were utopian in the sense that they weren't revolutionary socialists, right? Oh. They weren't trying to overthrow the established order. They were trying to create communities within the established order that would then, they thought, sort of spread out like a coronavirus or something. Um, so that's what, when we talk about the utopians, we're talking about that word utopian means something different in common parlance today than it did back then. The thing that strikes me about the measures that were put in place in, in many communist countries is that it wasn't free women's rights. It yeah. was purely pragmatic. It's, we need more people working, let's let women work, let's yeah. enable women to work. And by the way, we also need women to give birth, mm -hmm. so let's enable them to work and give birth. That's the thing, isn't it? Does that pragmatism not undermine the intent of it? The good intent yeah, of I it? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, that there's absolutely no doubt that uh, Kolontai in 1917 really needed women's labor in the factories because so many men had been mobilized to the front in World War I and then they were lost in the, in the Civil War. As was the case in, in Europe. Uh, absolutely, after the Second World War. Western Europe, right. same. But here's the thing, and, and this is sort of like um, the law of unintended consequences, which is that they empowered women and, and I, I, in my academic work, because I'm actually an academic, I, I don't, this is my first not academic book. Um, I've done a lot of really careful research on this, which is that most of these countries empowered women who themselves self-identified as socialists to um, both increase women's labor force participation rate because they absolutely needed the labor. You're absolutely right. It was very pragmatic. And on the other hand, increase professional uh, education and training. Uh, because they wanted women to be truly kind of uh, equals, intellectual equals. They saw that as sort of a, a, uh, a benefit of socialism. So two things happened. That's quite ideal. Though. It's very from ideal. From whence did that idealism come? So it came from those early socialist ideas in the, in the, in the late uh, 19th century, and then obviously the idealism of the Soviet Union in the 20s. But what I think happens is two things happen after World War II as these social societies start to develop in Eastern Europe in particular. The first is that the women themselves start reading Babel and Kolontai, and to a certain extent Lenin, and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, women's emancipation is boiled into socialism. You guys can't ignore this. You can't do what Stalin did and reverse these things, right? So uh, in one of my academic books, I look very clearly at the Bulgarian Women's Committee. And after 1966, um, when Romanians overturn their liberalized abortion law and they become very draconianly pro-natalist, the Bulgarians consider doing something similar. And it's the women 
in the Bulgarian Women's Committee who said, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to expand kindergartens and creches. You have to support women in the labor force. Um, you, can't, you can't go back on this now. Similarly, in Poland, Catholic Poland, uh, where the Communist Party wanted to limit access to abortion and wanted to limit access to sex education, it was the Women's Committee who said, mm -mm -mm, go back and read your Bible, go back and read your Engels. Women's rights are part of this whole program. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is superpower rivalry. Because what happens in the 50s, there's a wonderful book by a colleague of mine, Elaine Tyler May, called Homeward Bound, which is where in Western societies, whether it's America or Western Germany, there's this idealization after women are mobilized into the labor force in World War II, you know, the Rosie the Riveter, right? Um, after the men come home, the women get shoved back into the kitchen. And a lot of women are really unhappy about being shoved back into the kitchen, it turns out. Whereas in Eastern Europe, and we have very good data on this, right, in 1950, uh, women in the Soviet labor force are like 52% of the labor force because there are so few men, right? Um, in North America, it's like 30% or 28%. It's really low because so many women are, are pushed out. And so what happens is that suddenly on the international stage, starting in the 60s, but especially after um, the launch of Sputnik in 1957, after 1957, the United States passes the National Defense Education Act in 1958, which is the first piece of federal legislation that allocates money for the education of women in math and science. And why? Because men in the American government said, the Soviets are beating us at the space race because they have twice the brain power. We have a problem because our women are not educated. And then in 1961, President Kennedy signs Executive Order 10980, which establishes the first presidential commission on the status of women. And in the preamble to this executive order, it is justified as a national uh, defense for national security reasons. Why? Because Kennedy went to Harvard. And um, Kennedy, and, and by the way, he appoints Eleanor Roosevelt to be the chair of this commission, which is really important. But he knew all these really smart women at Radcliffe, which was the sister college of Harvard at the time. And he said, God, all those really smart women, they like graduate from Radcliffe and then they get married and they stay home as moms. What a waste, right? So suddenly in 1963, when the report of this committee is published, it happens to be the same year that Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique is also published, um, there's a lot of attention to women's rights. And between 1963 and 1975, which is the UN uh, Year of Woman, the, the first UN uh, declares the um, Year of Women, and then that eventually becomes the Decade of Women from 1976 to 1985, the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc stand up at the UN and on the international stage, and especially talking to countries in the global south, and say, we, socialism, is the only path to women's true emancipation. And they turn around and they say, look, in 1970, 43% of women who graduate, graduated with engineering degrees in Romania, sorry, were women, 43% of students. And I think Bulgaria, it's like 37%. In 1976, in the United States, 3.4% of engineering graduates were women. That's a huge difference, right? So suddenly, it becomes a, a propaganda war. And I think that the superpower rivalry, actually, the Americans, and as I said in this other book that I wrote called Second World, Second Sex, I actually look at declassified documents uh, during the Nixon administration, for instance where um, Nixon is very uncomfortable with feminists. <laughs> um, and his advisors are saying, you kind of have to pay attention to the feminists, right? Um, they're, they're voters. <laughs> and you know, women vote. And so you have to kind of give them some. Possibly not for Nixon. Yeah, not for Nixon. <laughs> I mean, you quote, interestingly enough, this is uh, taking you off track, I'm sorry. But oh. I just reminded myself of this bit where you say that back in 2007, Anne Coulter yes. uh, told a radio interviewer that the American political system would be vastly improved if the country repealed the 19th Amendment mm -hmm. and only let men go to the polls. She if said this. If we took away women's right to vote, said Anne Coulter, we'd never have to worry about another Democratic president. It's a personal fantasy of mine. Women voted stupidly, especially single women, and the Democratic Party should be ashamed that more men didn't vote for its candidates. Mm -hmm. 
So <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. Well, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is that, look, I mean, women tend to favor a more robust social safety net because they have caregiving responsibilities. It's not a shock, right? Um, the fact that these um, socialist countries, and uh, you know, primarily because I study Russia and Eastern Europe, I write about the state socialist countries in Eastern Europe, but we could have an entire conversation about Scandinavia as well. And what we see, I wrote a, a piece um, for the New York Times last week for International Women's Day, where we see very clearly when we look at OECD data on time use, uh, unpaid labor in the home, and the gap between men and women, that the gap is the smallest in countries with the largest social safety nets, right? It's just, I mean, it's just data, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not some kind of, you know, wild-eyed Marxist zealot revolutionary. I'm just looking at OECD data and showing you that, look, if you look at the um, recorded, these are minutes per day spent in unpaid labor, that the gap between men and women is smallest in countries that have socialized things like childcare and elder care. It's not you know, rocket science. Why did you need to revisit communism? Mm. Why didn't you just go to the Scandi countries and say, look, they've done the cherry picking already, let's look at what they're doing? Yeah, because I'm a social scientist. And when you have a question like I had, which is how does the economic system impact our personal relationships, our intimate relationships, and our friendships, our, our personal uh, contacts with one another. I cannot ethically take babies and put them in a lab and raise them, one under communism and one under, and, and one under capitalism, and see who ends up happier. That would be unethical, right? So, so what you do as a social scientist, you look for a natural experiment. You look out around the world and you say, okay, here are a group of countries that were uh, socialist, with varying degrees of market. And again, I want to point out that, you know, so Yugoslavia was much more open, Hungarians had goulash communism and a big secondary market, uh, Bulgaria was more closed, Romania was incredibly closed, Albania was totally hermetically sealed, right? So there's a lot of diversity. But generally speaking, comparatively to Western Europe, these are countries that had far fewer market mechanisms than in the West. So, 1989 or 1991, depending on where you are, comes along, and suddenly you get capitalism. So, as a social scientist, this is the perfect laboratory to study my question. What happened between 1989 and 2019 or 2018 when I was writing this book? And what you can see is the very theories that Alexandra Kollontai was talking about, about the commodification of our sexuality, about the commodification of our affect, of our emotions, of our attentions, of our affections, you can actually see evidence of them in what happened between 1989 and 2018. Interestingly, you talk about the transactional nature of relationships being revealed in language, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you spending time or investing in a relationship or going back on the market. Being back on the market. <laughs> right? When you break up with somebody, I'm back on the market, right? Is, do they translate into the Eastern European languages? No, of course not, right? I mean, they do now because those languages have, have you know, especially with the gamification of dating on apps like Tinder and things yeah. like that, right? But, but I think that, yeah, you know, we, the way that we speak about our intimate lives is, is infused with capitalist language. Right, and, I, and one of the things that I often talk about is how, you know, I try, and it's hard to do it, but I try to say rather than I'm spending time with my daughter or I'm spending time with my friends, I'm sharing time with my daughter. I'm sharing time with my friends. It's free, <laughs> right? I'm not, I'm not selling this, right? Um, and I, I'm not investing in a relationship, right? I'm like, you know, I'm like um, sort of... Uh, cuddling a relationship. I don't know. We have to think about words, the, the way that we think about our intimate relationships and our emotions. I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to get off on a tangent here because I could spend a lot of time talking about um, social media and apps like Tinder or Bumble or... Um, Bumble? 
Bumble is another thing in the United States, right? Oh. Or, or Seeking.com, right? Do Which, we know about Bumble? Do you guys have Bumble? Yeah, you have Bumble. Okay. Um, these are these are these are apps, you know. Or we have a website in the United States called Rentafriend.com. I, you guys are laughing, but this is a very serious thing, right? So my students will tell me that rather than you know hanging out with their friends at university on the weekend, they'll like sell hours of their time to strangers um, to go to a museum or to a baseball game or whatever, be, you know, because it's valuable. And I think that when we allow them, well, you mean somebody will give them money? Yes. In order to go to a museum with them? Yes. Oh, that's yes. Weird. Yes. I mean, so, so Rent-A-Friend is, uh, is um, demonstrably not sexual. Not sexual. Not sexual. Seeking.com is sexual. Right. Right. Um, so the rates are higher. Um, <laughs> but if you just want to, like, commodify a, a couple hours of your afternoon on a Saturday, right, um, you, you, you list your time on a website, and, you know, somebody who's coming through town for a business meeting or whatever and wants to go to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and doesn't want to go alone will rent you, you know? And, and I, you know, I'm not... I mean, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the fact that my students are often in a lot of debt because we don't have free university, right? And there's more than a trillion dollars of debt um, in the United States in terms of student loans. And so I understand the need to um, sell either your labor or your time or your emotions or your sexuality in order to meet your basic needs. I'm not making a judgment on that. But I do think that as we allow the market into all of our private, um, as we allow the commodification of our emotions and our attentions and our affections, those are the things that I'm the most worried about, that we, we, cease, we actually become less able to share them freely. Right, because you think every time, there, there was actually a wonderful um, piece, a modern love piece in the New York Times, I think it was last year, about a woman who was in Japan and some Japanese guy paid her like a hundred, the equivalent of like a hundred dollars to kiss her. Just a kiss, it was just a kiss. But she wrote this really interesting column about how every time afterwards she kissed some guy in a bar or she went home with somebody, she thought about the value of her lips in a different way because they had been commodified and that, that something about that just changed the reality of the kiss, right? And I think that, like, I would never, ever want to be in a situation where I look at my daughter and think, oh, you know, she's got, like, a friend problem at school and she's yammering on about, you know, so-and-so doing such-and-such and, such and, and I'm thinking, oh, this is, like, an hour of my time. What's my billable rate now and how much am I wasting on her? I mean, that's horrible, Right, and I think that what hap what's happening increasingly is that um, because of the commodification of data and the com commodification of attention, especially, um, many of us, especially young people, I think you know some of us who grew up pre-internet and pre-phone, iPhone and pre-smartphone, we're a little bit insulated from this. But for younger people who uh, who are branding themselves and who are, who are becoming a brand in order to go out onto the labor market um, so they can sell themselves for a price determined by the invisible hand of supply and demand, um, it can be incredibly dehumanizing. And that dehumanization ends up translating into our intimate relationships. Here's the thing, though. Are we biologically primed to take to the market. Uh. In other words, <laughs> mm -hmm. does socialism require containment and censorship? Because it always did, right? Mm. Is that... But it doesn't in Scandinavia. But Scandinavia can no longer afford the socialist... Right, right, right. Because Utopia. Yeah. Right. Right. that they originally came up with. So we come back yeah, to the feasibility. Right, so scarcity. Right? So I have two um, answers to that question. One is about the past and one is about the future. So the one about the past is that many people don't realize that the political philosopher John Stuart Mill called himself a socialist. He, um, in his posthumously published biography, he, he committed himself to socialism. But in his view of socialism, um, obviously this is pre-Marx, he thinks of socialism as morally superior to individualism. That only thinking about yourself 
is um, actually not a very healthy way to live life. It's actually not a really feasible way to live life. And he thought of it as a very crude, almost barbaric way, right, that was required by society. And he has this wonderful quote where he says, you know, when minds are coarse, let them have coarse things, and that the pursuit of wealth is better than constantly being at war. Um, but that eventually we will evolve to be less selfish and we'll be much more social in this particular sense. But um, the future, so, 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 so when I use the word socialism, I'm trying to reclaim it from its 20th century Eastern European instantiation, and I'm trying to go back to these original Why ideals. Why do you just call it democratic socialism? Well, I do, actually. I mean, I, I often talk about democratic socialism, and, you know, and people... Um, you know, we use, when, when uh, we talk about somebody like uh, August Babel, who was the founder of the German Social Democratic Party, for instance, he wanted to call it the German Democratic Socialist Party, but he was sort of forced to compromise with the followers of Ferdinand Lazal, and so they, they settled on um, social democracy. But if we go back and we look at these early um, uh, uh, fights about semantics, democratic socialism was the right term, and that's why Bernie Sanders uses it, that's why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uses it, and I, and I tend to think that that's the right term. I make a distinction in the book between state socialism, which I call what happened in Eastern Europe, and democratic socialism, which I think is the kind of ideal that we, we should aspire to. But so then the other thing is this question of scarcity. And what you, what you are pointing out is a, a problem that I think everybody who thinks about socialism has to deal with. Is it's when, expensive. It's expensive, and in, in a world of scarce resources, how do we distribute these efficiently? Um, and so, of course, socialists will argue about the levers, right? Taxation and redistribution uh, versus uh, public ownership or private ownership. There are all sorts of ways, I kind of think of them as sliders, right? Different socialist societies have had different ideas of where those sliders are, where the ideal points are for different societies. But I think that as we go forward into the 21st century, we have several problems that the market cannot solve. Climate change is one of them. Uh, coronavirus is probably another one. I hadn't thought about it when I wrote the book. Inequality and automation. And uh, the profit motive is uniquely undermining collective action on problems that cannot be solved by the market. Because the market cannot solve climate change. I don't think the market can solve extreme inequality, which is becoming a bigger and bigger problem, especially in my country, but also... Well, you don't believe in the trickle-down theory? No, actually, I don't. Um, and automation is another thing. So and coronavirus is an interesting one, actually, because, you know, all these people are saying, where's the government? What's right. the government? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Suddenly, everybody's a socialist when there's a bloody coronavirus, right? Everybody wants the government. Even Trump is saying that the government needs to start simulating the economy. Wait, wait, isn't that socialism? Um, <laughs> excuse me. So, so I do think, yeah, that um, they want, um, you know, public, uh, public risk and private reward. That's not a good system. And I think that when we talk about democracy, as an I am, you know, a, a, a firm believer in political democracy and, and, and political freedom, that, you know, wealthy people use the state to their own advantage. This is not, again, you know, it's not a newsflash to anybody. Um, so why can't working people use the state to their own advantage? Why can't working people uh, promote political ideas and interests that will serve their own needs. Um, the minute working people get together and start demanding things of the state, it's socialism, right? And so this is the other problem that I have with, and uh, this is the last thing I'll say about your, your question, um, which is in my country, and again, this is very specific, I think, to the United States, when I um, say that I am talking about the kind of social democracy that they have in Scandinavia, for instance, or, or more specifically, let's say a country like Norway, where one in every three employees is a government employee. And the largest uh, enterprise, which is the oil company, is 67% owned by the government, and they have a sovereign wealth fund through which they redistribute income from oil to the population. Which is lucky. Very lucky. No, no. So, but, but, it is, but it is very close to a socialist country as far as like, the ownership structure because is concerned. Because they're rich. Because they're rich. But when I say that, people say, no, that's not socialism. That's, that's Scandinavia, that's social, that they're, they're, they're democracies, they're capitalists, but they have like taxation and redistribution and they have these big social safety nets and they have childcare and eldercare and healthcare and all these wonderful things. So I say, oh, that's not socialism. Okay, can we have the policies that they have in countries like Denmark or Norway? No, because that's socialism. <laughs> Look, we have time for questions from the audience. 
I'm just wondering why the electorate in the US consistently votes for capitalism and rejects even the mildest form of socialism. It's a very good question because you wrote this book with a degree of hope that Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders might scoop up the young people and the women. But no, <sighs> yeah, they did yeah. not. The short answer is terrible disinformation and ignorance. Uh, on the part of, of, my, of, of my compatriots. Um, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. That's one of the reasons why I think it's really important that people are, are, are engaging with these ideas. Uh, I think people are really afraid of, of change. And, um, you know, when we talk about something like Medicare for All, for instance, um, some of our best economists have gone to, you know, the major national newspapers and said, look, if you, if you take all of the money that we now pay in premiums with deductibles and co-pays, and you took all of that money and you actually put it into a national health care, um, we would pay less, which will be better for everybody, men and women alike. Um, you know, people just suddenly start calling you Stalin. Where's the hope? Are we as a species just doomed? No, I hope not. I have a young daughter uh, who's very politically engaged, I like to say, and I am very hopeful. She'll be voting this year? She will be voting yes. this year for her first time. And I hope that as young people recognize the challenges of the 21st century, of climate change, of automation, of inequality, of all of these problems that the market cannot solve, that they will reach for political solutions in a powerful way. I don't think that's happened yet. The biggest problem that I see is that the establishment intentionally tries to discourage people. It tries to make us cynical. It tries to make us feel hopeless and powerless. And we are not hopeless and we are not powerless. And so the most important thing that we can do is to encourage each other to have hope and to keep fighting for the future. Um, thank you. Thank you for a fantastic conversation. Please thank Kristen once again.